We are going to look this morning for a few moments at a very special first miracle that was carried out by Peter and John. And it's kind of the opening miracle of the apostolic age, right? So Jesus has risen, and then he ascends, having spoken and met with his disciples on numerous occasions. Then the Spirit of God comes upon them at Pentecost. We'll be thinking about that in a few weeks' time. And then this happens this uh, great and mighty miracle in Acts chapter 3. We're going to read it. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, both books, devotes around about two chapters to this event. It's big. It's obviously very big for him. And uh, for several reasons, I think it's really important for us to think about together this morning as well. So I'll read it. I know we don't have Bibles. It's one of the things that's on my heart for this church is to get some Bibles. And when we come out of you know, locked down more fully, we'll be able to pass them around and things, so that we've got scriptures open. If you've got a Bible app, we've got a phone with the Bible on it, whatever, it's kind of handy to have that. Or do bring your own Bibles, of course, you can do that. Nothing stopping you bringing your own Bible. It's just handy because I guess my function here as a preacher, what I'm really aiming to do, uh, is to just draw out what's here. That's what I'm trying to do this morning, is just to really just let it speak for itself. Trust you're not here to hear my particular musings on life, but we're here to hear the Lord Jesus and his living word. So good to have Bibles. Let me read for us. We're going to go from Acts chapter 3, 19 verses, so you get the whole story. Just sort of get in the, in the place of momentarily after the resurrection, momentarily after ascension, momentarily after Pentecost. This is where we're at. One day, here we go, Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention. He expected to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit being at the temple courts and at the gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us 
as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I'm going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I've got four things to notice about this astonishing miracle, this inbreaking power of God. And they are that this power and this miracle that came about then, it points up, it points forward, it points inward, and it points backwards. So that's kind of, if you like a bit of structure to a talk, I've got four things to say, four things to just consider in this passage about the power that made this man walk, that it points up, forward, inward, backwards. Right, so we'll just work through those four things. And I hope that each one, as we stop over each one, it will be helpful as we think about this miracle together. So firstly, it points upward. It is indisputably pointing beyond any human power, any human capability to the work of God. Here's the facts. And Luke makes this really clear. That this guy is manifestly unwell. He is lame from birth. He's not hobbling around. He's not mildly unwell with a bad back or a dodgy hip. He is lame, and he's lame from birth. Later on in chapter 4, you learn that he's over 40 years old. He has been this way for 40-odd years, unable to walk, to the point where he has to be brought by friends to the temple every day to beg. He can't drag himself can't do anything. He's at that level of need, and it's been apparent that he's suffered like that for many years. Indeed, all his life, he is manifestly unwell. Number two, there was no assistance, no means, either by his own body's ability to heal. Our bodies have a built-in ability, don't they, to heal. Nor was he assisted by any clinicians or doctors or anything else in this act. There was no other means that God used to make this man well. But also, it wasn't just that his body wasn't making him well, nor the doctors. Can I point out a few other things? There was no laying on of hands. There was no anointing oil. 
there was no prayer meeting or evening of miracles or whatever of healing there was no synth on in the background playing a nice low pad to create a bit of atmosphere there wasn't even just a simple prayer did you notice that wasn't that Peter said, okay, Lord God, here we go. Let's, we're going to pray for this man now. He just says, he gives an apostolic command. And he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. It's as simple and as authoritative as that. And then thirdly, so manifestly unwell, one apostolic command... And then thirdly, he is instantly and completely restored. So his healing didn't then take another six months. Immediately, he's up on his feet. Immediately, he knows how to use his feet. I mean, that's incredible in itself. He's never walked before. So the Lord healed his legs and healed his mind so that he could even know how to walk. You usually have to learn that. He, he knows how to walk. He knows how to leap. And it all happens instantaneously, such that the crowd see it, right? Everyone sees it. It wasn't done in the corner. So let me just read you verse 9. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same one who used to sit begging at the temple. And so they all come over. They, That's that guy. But not only the crowd the general public. I want to point out something else which just comes up in the next chapter, which is even that the opponents of the apostles, the enemies of the gospel, if you like, the people who wouldn't want this miracle to be true, the people who would be motivated that it weren't true, even they say this. Listen to this. This is what Luke calls for us, 4.16. What are we going to do with these men? They're talking amongst themselves. What are we going to do with these men, they asked, talking about Peter and John. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. Isn't that powerful? Now, I put these three things in front of us because this is the first miracle of the apostolic age. The first one that's recorded for us, at least. And I think, in some way, it serves actually as quite a helpful blueprint, prototype, case study for what we might describe as the power of God carrying out a miracle that is indisputably, beyond any other means, his work. Manifestly unwell. This is not like a headache are instantly healed, such that the crowds acknowledge it and the enemies acknowledge it. And everyone can say, even those who are opponents, who would have reason to disclaim what they were saying, even they say, we can't deny it. It's truly a miracle in that sense, isn't it? We can talk about God heals, sort of on one side here. God heals, he's given us incredible bodies, that often heal themselves. He's given us incredible minds that have developed technology, modern medicine, all kinds of techniques and to help us get well. 
But that's not this. This is clearly something out of the ordinary. And it, it should stand up to that kind of interrogation. I only learned the other day that uh, there's a place in the south of France called Lourdes. Familiar with this place? And the, actually the Catholic Church in Lee is, is named after the place called Our Lady of Lourdes. You might know the church. And Lourdes has been a place where people go for healing. It's kind of been a place where Catholics go on pilgrimage to, he, to, to Lourdes for healing. Uh, because loads of stuff was going on there at the end of the 19th century, in fact, right on up and through to this day. And uh, lots of people reported miraculous healing. So what they actually did, and I don't know, I, I was quite impressed by this, if it's true, and I'm, I'm going on the testimony of uh, others who've told me this is the case. Uh, they set up a medical bureau on site, and they have doctors there. They have a duty doctor who will um, look at the claims that people make that they've been miraculously healed. Many of them will be dismissed because they just wouldn't be able to verify whether or not something has happened or not. Those that they think are intriguing and genuine and look like you know, a fairly authentic work of God, that something's really happened, they then submit, and I quote, to an international committee of 20 experts in various medical disciplines and of different religious beliefs, apparently. I, I don't know if that's true, but I think that's very, very good. I think that's excellent. Because there should be no shame if a genuinely something awesome and miraculous has happened. It should stand the test of the fiercest critic. So it does here in Acts chapter 3. It wasn't just some little trifling as leg got a centimetre longer. This was a work of embracing power, the living God, and it was manifestly obvious for everyone to see. And in that sense, it points upward. Undoubtedly. Okay, that's point one. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> okay. It points forward. I'll be quicker. The, the power that heals this man is a sign of God's kingdom breaking in, and it's a kingdom still future. It is interesting, isn't it, that uh, sometimes we say miracles are like a suspension, like a the Lord's kind of suspended what ordinarily happens in nature to do something incredible. Sometimes say that. But actually, what we see here is more that God is kind of, he's restoring what should be natural. It should be natural that this man is walking around and healed and able to leap. So he's not suspending what's natural, he's restoring what's natural and relieving this man's suffering in the way that points to a day still coming, a day future, when the Lord will relieve all suffering. That's the point. So just think about Jesus very quickly. He gives people bread to eat. Just take three. Could take any number, really. He gives people bread to eat and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. So I'm feeding you with this bread so that you would know that there's a day coming when you will never hunger or thirst, neither for fellowship nor for, you know, actual food. I will relieve every kind of poverty that means you don't eat now. I will give that to you one day. He opens the eyes of a man born blind, John 8, and he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
you will know the light of life. If you follow me, I'll take you through to that day future when you'll always live in the light of the glory, the knowledge of the Lord. And finally, when he brings Lazarus back from the dead, does that great and powerful miracle there, he says, I'm the resurrection of the life, and he who believes in me will never die. Pointing forward. These miracles all point forward. Because I don't know, have you ever wondered, right, why God doesn't do, why doesn't Jesus do uh, cloud writing? Uh, why doesn't he do a bit of, I don't know, he could do a bit of sort of Iron Man. He could sort of do about five feet off the floor, maybe 10 feet off the floor, maybe 50 feet off the floor, just fly around a bit, kind of just glide down, then come down. It'd still get the same sort of, oh my goodness, this is incredible. He'd still get the same wow factor. You know, he could have looked through walls and said, there's a table behind that wall, there's three people behind that wall, a bit of x-ray vision. Could have done those things. But that's not what happens in the Gospels. It's not what happens in the Acts. Pretty much throughout the Bible, the miracles all relieve suffering because they're pointing to a day future. Particularly in this passage, just one more little detail, if I may, is that he leapt. you know how Luke says he leapt? He jumped up. He jumped up and he leapt. He makes that point twice. I'll tell you why I think that is. Just going to put a marker in there. Listen to this from Isaiah 35. Isaiah is a prophet. He spoke long ago of the day future. He said this. Then, on that day, will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. They will enter Zion with singing. Do you notice how he goes into the, into, into the temple? like a picture he's like walking in with peter and john they will enter zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads gladness and joy will overtake them sorrow and sighing will flee away it's the promise of the day future that's what's being shown to us when these guys when this miracle is done So the miracle points, the power, this inbreaking power of God, it points upward, it points forward, it points inward. It points inward to our great need for Jesus. Can we hang on this one just for a moment? Our great need for Jesus, that we need to reckon with him. Let me illustrate this this way. I, I think, I listened to Boris the other day when he gave a little Easter address and I often listen to politicians when they talk about the church. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but they do say some good things. They'll say, um, what a fabulous thing it is that local churches are getting together to provide food banks. What a great thing it is that local churches are providing community, maybe those who are on the margins. What a great thing that they use for vaccination centers. That's been a recent one. What a great thing that they, home, uh, they provide homeless shelter for um, those who most need it during the winter months or whatever. Often those things are said. Right? A great work that the church is doing in all of these ways. I'll tell you what they don't say. They don't say that the church is doing a great job calling people to, verse 19, this is where Peter goes with this whole episode. This is where it ended up in that reading I just gave you. Where does it go? It goes 
repent and turn to God so that your sins might be forgiven and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, I don't hear politicians praising the church for saying that. I don't hear them saying, isn't it a wonderful thing that the church is calling this nation to repentance and faith in the living God? They don't say that. And so what I worry about that is it undermines our confidence as a church. We feel undermined as the people of God to think that that's the really important thing. But it is. That's what this whole thing's pointing to. Do you notice that when, when uh, Peter and John heal this man, what they don't do is say, oh, fantastic, that worked. Right, if you want to form an orderly queue with all your ailments, we'll just crack out each one, just bring it forward, and we'll just do the healing right here, right now, for the rest of the afternoon. Just line up, nice orderly queue. They don't do that. This one miracle happens, and then Peter goes, right, here's my opportunity. And he addresses the crowds and calls upon them to do the more important thing, the more critical thing, which is turn to the name, the mighty, the strong name of Jesus that healed this man in repentance and faith. Trust in him that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's where it goes. Don't let the world sap you, me, us, of a confidence that that is the really important thing here. The world will never say, well done for preaching a gospel of repentance. They'll say, well done for running all these things. But this is the, this is the crucial thing. And I want you to notice that. Did you notice how this miracle so closely parallels the first, um, parallels the first miracle of Jesus? Or one of the first miracles that, Jesus, uh, that Luke talks about in chapter 5. Luke, Luke chapter 5. Remember the paralyzed man? It's so similar. Jesus has called his disciples. What happens next? Paralyzed man gets brought by his friends. He can't move himself. He gets lowered through the roof. And everyone stood there going, what, is Jesus going to heal him? Do you remember what Jesus says? First, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He does the more important thing. as does Peter and John. And the miracle works to authenticate the message. The miracle here, this great power of God that's seen, is there to serve up, to create a platform for, the opportunity for, this message. You crucified the Son of God. You chose a murderer, by the way. You'd rather have a murderer walk your streets than the author of life. You killed that one, but God raised him from the dead. That is the one in whose name this miracle has been done, and he is the one on whom you must believe. That's the critical message. All right. It points forward. No. Upward, forward, inward, backward. Last one. This power, this, this power of God points backward. What do I mean? I want you to notice that um, for Peter and John to heal this man, 
it costs them something. You'll get onto it. If you read through the rest of the story, what happens, they do this mighty miracle in Jesus' name with great apostolic authority, yes. The next thing that happens is they get arrested, though, and they get taken away, they're put in prison, and then they're brought before the religious authorities of the day, the following day, to give an account. They suffer. They pay a price for this man's healing. There's a, there's a cost to it. They don't instantly become famous celebrities and religious elites who then get to take the seats at the councils of the day. They suffer. And in that way, it, it points back to all the miracles of Jesus where whenever he does something in the life of someone else, whenever he works a miracle in something in someone else's life, it costs him something. Do you notice that? It happens all the way throughout. In fact, I was so struck by uh, our prayer meeting on Thursday night, we went back into the Old Testament, right back into Exodus 17, before we get to Jesus. There they are fighting a battle against the Amalekites, and Moses has literally stood on the top of a mountain with his arms out like this. He's actually kind of in that sort of cruciform position with his arms out wide because you're told there's one man on his left one man on his right so they're presumably holding him up like this but the point is he's so weak he can't even hold up his own arms but if his arms are held up for him in his weakness i can't know he's like i can't it's too, my arms are too heavy i can't do it as he stands there weak and cruciform on the top of the mountain the miracle goes on down below and they're winning the battle against the enemies of God. So it is with Jesus. When the woman touches out and grabs his robe, he feels power go from him. When he heals, usually on the Sabbath or something like that, he's, he becomes a target. People go after him. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? In order to bring Lazarus, we just talked about Lazarus, in order to bring Lazarus back from the grave, Jesus has to go into the grave. It's the next thing that happens, essentially. To bring Lazarus out, Jesus has to go in. They plot to kill him from that moment on, John tells us. There's a sense in which, in order for Jesus to give us life, in order for him to display the power of God, if the power of God is on display to heal us and restore us, it costs. Our redemption costs. The restoration of the world costs. And Jesus paid the cost. And when he... In order to do that, the greatest miracle of all, the living God becomes a person. In order to bring about this great restoration of all things, the living God becomes vulnerable. He becomes killable. He becomes nailable and thornable and spearable. We can kill him. He can die. He becomes vulnerable. He's prepared. He's able to suffer to do this mighty work of God, this restoration of all things. And so isn't it interesting? It's almost like 
It's like woven in. It's not a different power of God that we see on display in Acts 3. When the apostles do something, when they pray in Jesus' name for the healing of this man, they suffer because it points us back to the source because Jesus suffered to bring about the power of God and the renewal of everything. Isn't that an interesting thought? Isn't it an interesting... I wonder how many times you pray for someone, just a sort of sideline here, and think to yourself, this might cost me. If I pray for this person to be healed, this might, this might cost me something. Because God's way, God's power is cruciform power. It's substitutionary power. He gives of himself that we might live. And so when he displays his power through his people, it's going to look the same way. When I pray for someone, I pray, Lord, would you heal that man? Would you heal that child? Would you heal that woman? I might expect in some way to be mimicking the power of God that is self-giving, But we do that out of a response of thanks to God, don't we? That he did it. He did this for us. All right. This miracle, this inbreaking power, it points up. It points forward. It points up because it's indisputably God. It points forward. It's a sign of the future breaking in. It points inward. It confronts us with the message of repentance. And it points backward. It points backward to that cruciform, substitutionary power that we see most clearly in Jesus. Is that helpful? It's a mighty miracle, isn't it? And the, and the outcome is, the message is, repent. Turn to God for the forgiveness of your sins. That times of refresh, times of refreshing might come. That's the message we believe and hold to as a church. It's the message we're offering this town. That times of refreshing might come. Let's pray. Living Lord God, we thank you for this show of mighty resurrection power in the life of this lame man, lame from birth, lame for 40 years. He didn't expect it. He was there begging for money. He got something that he didn't bargain for. And I wonder if there's someone listening, either here or online. They didn't come here expecting very much. But we've heard of the living God who gave of himself cruciform power to restore us and to restore all things. Just pray for that confidence, Lord, in us, in the gospel, that we might cherish it, hold it, treasure it and then hold it out to others this week and we pray in Jesus mighty name Amen